everyone. Welcome to another episode of the eLearning Africa podcast. I'm Rob Bember. This podcast is brought to you by eLearning Africa, the Pan-African network for ICT for education, training and skills development. Africa's home for ideas, innovation and sustainable solutions for education, training and skills development since 2005. In this episode of the podcast, I'm in conversation with Mark West. I caught up with Mark ahead of his keynote address at the recently concluded eLearning Africa conference in Kigali, Rwanda. What would it mean in terms of environmental impact to ensure that all 2 billion learners in the world have good, high quality connected devices that are often obsolete after two, three, four years? In our conversation, Mark provides a sobering assessment of how the world has fared with regards to education during the COVID-19 pandemic, describing it as a story of exclusion, heightened inequities, diminished learning, and diminished educational experiences. West acknowledges the need to look at how educational technologies can improve learning and efficiencies, but emphasizes the fundamental need for providers of education to look at how they can contribute to the holistic well-being of learners. Mark shares UNESCO's ideas on how to better center society's most marginalized, advocates for more online public spaces for public education, and emphasizes the need for creativity and pedagogical innovation about how to use the strengths of the digital space to improve teaching and learning. Mark West works in UNESCO's education sector where he examines how technology can improve the quality, equity and accessibility of learning. He currently leads work to operationalize the rewired global declaration on connectivity for education. He's also authoring a UNESCO publication called An EdTech Tragedy about lessons learned following the global shift from school-based education to technology-based education during the COVID-19 pandemic. As the world seems to, to some degree, get back to some sense of, of normalcy and we kind of seem to have that urge and in some degree fighting the urge to move along, what are you seeing in the space that you're working in, that you're researching? What are you seeing from the data? How quickly have, has education managed to bounce back, if it has, or is it lagging even further behind than what it was prior to the pandemic? Uh, thanks for the question, Rob. I think the short answer is not quickly enough. I mean, we see that uh, education has often been sort of put on a, a back burner uh, with this uh, with this crisis. We saw that in many countries, uh, school closures went on for a very long time. Uh, in some countries, two years and running. That's an incredible amount of time for schools to be shut down. We see schools as absolutely essential uh, infrastructure. This is very important for the well-being of children, of young people, um, and of their, their family, of communities. And it's very unfortunate the, the duration of, of some of these closures. I think that, you know, in some places we saw really heroic efforts to move to open schools as quickly as possible, you know, to try to prioritize that. But, um, you know, all too often, we also saw sort of 
bit of a complacency where schools, uh, you know, remain shut for a long time. And in one of our upcoming publications, we speak to this sort of perception that technology could help fill the gap, you know, may have led uh, some places to, to keep schools longer perhaps than they should have been. For instance, we look back to some historical data, obviously a lot different uh, with this current pandemic than the pandemic of uh, 1918, the Spanish influenza, but during previous pandemics, schools uh, were, were closed for much shorter uh, durations of time and in recognition of their, uh, you know, importance as, uh, as essential infrastructure and as a, a place of well-being for, uh, for, for children and, and young people. And that's an interesting point that you raise. And, and the first time I've heard that I've been in conversation with raise it in that way and the point that we've kind of used technology as an excuse to to justify schools remaining closed for as long as it has been closed and, and I think what I'm hearing you say is where you're coming from in the work that you're doing would much rather that technology complement learning as opposed to it's not really designed to to replace the model as it stands is that correct yeah I mean, it's, it's, it's a patch, right? I mean, uh, you know, we can, if you, if you got a, if you've got a hole in, in your pants or something, I mean, you, you know, a, a, a patch is, uh, for some people it's good enough. I mean, it's a patch that didn't work for over half of the world too. I mean, that's another thing to keep in mind. It's a, it was a patch for some and, and no solution for, for many others, uh, on the African continent. I mean, the, the exclusion, from education when technology moved or when education moved to technology was uh, was was mind boggling. I mean, huge numbers of people did not have any access to uh, formal education when it became reliant on Internet connected technologies. But there was still that perception, if you will, that, you know, education was being taken care of. There were other options, whereas when it comes to grocery stores, food things. I mean, those were, you know, there, I think there's this, there were no other options, so, but the perception of a good enough solution maybe led to the, the prolongation of, of having a, a more permanent uh, sort of, uh, sort of solution. So, yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it is an important um, observation, uh, perhaps a controversial one, people may agree or disagree, but I think it's okay to raise this possibility that you know, presenting technology as being a replacement for schools, you know, the, the perception of this being a, a feasible solution uh, maybe led to people sort of, you know, slowing down sort of emergency efforts to ensure schools reopened quickly. So what is the paradigm from your perspective that we should ideally be looking at technology and education through? What is that ideal relationship? What is the balance? How do they work hand in glove? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. That's the million dollar question is, is how, how, do we, how do we balance this relationship? I think the, the experiences of the, of the past two years of, of the pandemic have sort of shown that these, these visions, which were very much in circulation before the pandemic, that, you know, technology and digital spaces represented a sort of maybe a, a more modern or even more effective 
uh, more flexible, more agile kind of nexus for, for education, you know, that this could be the sort of core and that maybe schools would lose their, their dominant perch. I think there's been some, some rethinking around this and some soul searching about this and that people suddenly saw schools as essential institutions that provide a lot more than academic and curricular learning. You know, we, 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 we live in, in societies that have really become, I think, a bit obsessed with, you know, signifiers of academic progress. You know, how, are, how exactly are people doing in, in math and in reading? And we see, you know, country rain, rankings and things like this. And COVID reminded us that, that education does a lot more than that, especially school-based education. These are places of socialization. These are places of acculturation. These are places where people learn to come into, a, you know, a, a, com a community. They learn to deal with uh, people from different backgrounds outside of the family. You know, that there are so many different things that the schools do. The, we even observe that having uh, children uh, go to school is often uh, a reason to ensure that um, communities are safe for children. You know that there, there are sidewalks and there are crosswalks, and you know that the the world outside the home is a is a world that's uh, safe and 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 uh, accommodating for for young people and for children. So I think that's that's an important observation. I think a lot of people have have recognized that, and I think that's a really important recognition that some of our discussions about education have become a little bit narrow about what we think education should do. And I think post-COVID, one of the really nice things that happens is people are taking a more enlarged view of education. We've certainly seen the word well-being circulating a lot more than uh, that was not kind of a word that was central to the education discourse uh, in 2018 or 2019. So, you know, I think that's important. And now I think rightfully so, people are looking at how can educational technologies improve learning, add efficiencies, absolutely, we need to do that, but also how most fundamentally can they contribute to well-being? And that's a very important question. And that's certainly when we're thinking about at UNESCO, and I think the you know entire audience for e-learning Africa is also is also thinking about. Without question, I think I see it on the continent here at home in Africa, in South Africa specifically. But also, you know, there's stories from around the globe where we've specific to that question of well-being, where it's become so blatantly obvious, as you point out, for reasons of safety and security of the child, um, for for reasons of literally, especially on, on this continent, where the only full meal the child gets for the day is at school. But we've also seen that in the UK. I'm a big, uh, unashamed Manchester United fan for my sins. And uh, Marcus Rashford, the English footballer, campaigning for, for the government to continuing to provide meals to kids at school, because school is so much more, as you rightfully say, than, than just the academic side of things. You had, in 2019, put a lot of work and, and produced a report on gender equity within the, the ed tech space, and particularly some of the pitfalls and I was fascinated reading the, the introduction to that in particular as to how you came up with, 
with the name and I'm starting to, to pick up a, a bit of a pattern um, and we'll get to your latest publication that's due out shortly, but I'd blush if I could. It certainly catches the eye. Speak to, so 2019, you, you co-author I'd blush if I could, speaking to these gaps that exist in these blind spots. And then a year later, we're boom into a pandemic. How much harder has that task of gender equality become as a result again of the pandemic? Yeah, thanks. It's a good question. In 2019, yes, we observed these huge digital gender gaps that exist. You know, we know that around the world, women and girls are far less likely to use technology for empowering purposes across the board, education in particular, but, uh, you know, other purposes as well. Less likely to, you know, no matter how you break it down, less likely to uh, post on social media, uh, less likely to be able to own technology, less likely to use any type of uh, like mobile financial services. So kind of across the board, uh, there are huge inequities in, in, in digital spaces and with regards to ownership and access to connectivities. Now, I'd blush if I could is a real look at why is that the, you know, why is that the case? You know, why is it that technology is often sort of gendered male, you know, toys for boys and this, uh, this kind of business. And we really unpack the reasons for that. And we think that a lot of them are educational, that there are a lot of sort of signals in education that this is something that's sort of male for men and boys and, and sort of not for women. And we certainly see that in the professional industries as well, where you look at the people who are studying computer science and higher education overwhelmingly male. Then you get into, you know, people actually working in professional jobs in computer science. Again, even, even more overwhelmingly male. And so we, we trace some of the reasons for that and then propose ideas for how education can help to create greater gender equity, you know, in this, in the, you know, in these spaces and companies and, and ideas that are really shaping our future in a, in a profound, uh, in a profound way and talk about the ways that for instance, some countries that have made computer science uh, courses obligatory, you know, it's part of the core curriculum, that that uh, helps uh, women and girls to maintain interest in the subject and sort of continue to follow through and, and pursue it. Whereas when it's optional, women and girls in a lot of countries will, will opt not to pursue that course out of this perception that it's, uh, it's so gendered. But now, yes, fast forward to the, fast forward to the pandemic and you know, this immense reliance on technology just meant women, you know, given these existing uh, digital gender divides, women and girls were often uh, on the outside. You know, families might've had one connected device. That device was often being used by, by dad or an older son or something like that. And, uh, you know, during the pandemic, that meant missing out on education. It meant missing out on communication with uh, friends and peers. I mean, that was, uh, you know, those devices were really a, a source of connection to the outside world, to other services. And so, yes, it introduced uh, tremendous inequities. At the beginning of the pandemic, we were quite hopeful that, you know, given the, the strong shift to digital technologies, it could be an opportunity to correct some of these digital gender divides, you know, that people are sort of forced to begin using computers, download software, and you know, develop more familiarity. But you know, we're still looking for sort of strong evidence that that happened. I'm sure it happened in isolated uh, cases, uh, but did it happen sort of across the board? 
that's uh, that's harder to you know harder to see signals of that. It's another great point, and it I think goes back to to a point you made a few minutes ago regarding just the perceptions. We we sit here kind of having come through this knock on wood, um, come through this at this stage, April of 2022, feeling relatively okay that we've made it through a, a global pandemic. And the perception therefore is that many other people have made it through and, and schools are getting back and things are starting to work again. And so for, for those reasons, there is that perception that, yeah, everyone was able to get hold of a computer, get hold of a mobile device, able to continue their schooling. And it is a a rather privileged view to have, but perhaps as you're suggesting, not accurate. Are you, from a UNESCO point of view, or just you know your experience and exposure to this kind of work, aware of any studies out at well in the field at the moment of the various looking specifically at this issue of just how much were people either able to keep up or not? This is again one of those those million dollar questions. Is what we've been asking ourselves at UNESCO is how can digital technologies, this sort of digital transformation that's, that's on us, better support inclusion and equity? And that's a big question because look, efficiencies, yes. I mean, you know, we, we, can, we can talk about that, but what we have seen evidence of is this is just widening existing divides. You've got people who are already privileged becoming kind of more privileged with regards to they've got devices, they've got connectivity, they then have access to different types of educational resources, and you know, and 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 great, excellent. But then you have all these people who are on the outside, and we've not seen sort of clear models of how you know that that can help to ensure that there is greater inclusion and greater equity. Let me give you a concrete example. You know, at UNESCO, we're often talking about the people who are out of school. That's about 275 million people before COVID. I mean, huge numbers of students still do not have access to, to, to schooling and to formal education. When COVID happened, that conversation largely went, went away. The, the, the idea was then to reach people who are already in schools with some sort of connectivity and devices and to allow them to continue their learning. But those 275 million people, I mean, they were just, I was hopeless, lost. And so going forward, how, how can we use technology in, in creative and new ways to expand the number of people who are able to access education, to improve equity and not just drive divides further apart? A really sober and objective look at what happened during the sort of you know, periods of school closure and intense reliance on technology, it was a case study in inequities just ballooning, you know, growing. And so that's, that's the question we need to ask ourselves. What, what are the models to ensure greater inclusion and greater equity? We see a lot of focus and before the pandemic on, you know, greater efficiencies, greater outcomes and other things. But I think we can, you know, agree that this this idea of of inclusion and equity are are of paramount importance, and they're right at the top of you know international goals for education. Put those as sort of principles above other 
uh, above other principles. You know, something to, to think about as we go forward, and it's certainly something we're thinking about uh, at, at UNESCO. Is that then the, the foundation of an ed tech tragedy? Pretty much sounds like uh, a bit of a tragedy based on what you've just, I mean, soberly outlined and, and necessary to do so, certainly. What, what, is, what is the groundwork for an ed tech tragedy and what, what should we be expecting to read? Yeah, I mean, we're really excited about this work and, and we know it's a, a somewhat of a, you know, of a, of a interesting, interesting proposition, the, the title and maybe even a, a bit of a provocation, people will, you know, agree or disagree. But the narrative that we have seen grow up around this sort of pandemic is education catapulted into the future, education leapfrogged, you know, education, you know, thank goodness, we're finally moving away from this industrial model of schooling. And, uh, you know, education is sort of unshackled at last. And that's not our reading. Our reading is this was a story of, again, exclusion, heightened inequities, you know, diminished learning, diminished educational experiences, educational experiences uh, narrowing. Don't get me wrong. We're excited about the potentials of, of technology, but the particular models that were applied during, during COVID tended to benefit people who were already privileged in other ways and put people who were at disadvantages at even greater disadvantages and, and subjected them to even greater uh, exclusion. So that's what to sort of expect. I mean, an EdTech tragedy tells this world-spanning story of you know, what happened. Uh, and on one hand, I mean, it's just so interesting. For so long, people have been talking about, you know, education can sort of support the, or technology can support the full weight of education. And then due to this, you know, uh, global health emergency, suddenly that became a reality. And, you know, what, what occurred? And our book just breaks down, you know, what happened in different places and you know how was this experienced by teachers by learners how did relationships between teachers and and students between you know peers and classmates change as a result of this experience super super fascinating in my view and i think it really helps us understand how to position educational technologies a little bit differently and a little bit better so that they are really allies of kind of a, a more human-centered educational experience. We also observe in the in the book, you know, the enormous reliance on private providers, you know, and often for-profit companies. I mean, a lot of people's experience of education moving to technology platforms was education moving into things like Google Classroom, where you needed to establish a Google account. And then suddenly teachers were trying to figure out how to use all sorts of Google applications to provide education. Is that progress? We can agree or disagree, but that is an enormous reliance on, you know, on companies that are not, uh, you know, they're outside of public control. There wasn't any sort of public uh, discussion about these decisions that were taken. And, you know, I think that ideally, we're looking for education systems that serve serve a common and collective good. And you know, UNESCO has been really adamant that educa education is a human right. It doesn't exist in a sort of commercial logic of, of profit and you know that type of that type of world. It's it's something that is uh, it's something that is a right and serves a, a public as well as individual goods. 
And we saw during the pandemic, a really, it was sort of education for me, instead of this sort of ethic of education uh, for, for us. And we hope that uh, going forward, digital technologies can, you know, of course, support an edu education for me, that's important, but also can support this idea of an education for us and an education that advances public and, and collective goods. What was the kind of geographical scope of, of the book? I mean, you, you pretty much covered every corner of the globe, so to speak, and, and picked up patterns and similarities across in terms of that inequality. Absolutely, it's global in scope. And th this is where it gets you know, so interesting, our kind of moment, our digital moment, if you will. You had kind of two situations. In rich, in, in rich and developed countries, you had this sort of full technology saturation. Family concerns were that their children were spending too much time on digital devices. We had seen initiatives in some countries, Korea is one example where you know, governments were trying to shift uh, more teaching and learning in, into online spaces and digital textbooks and other things. And there was community and family resistance because it was like, school is the one place where my kid is not just staring at a screen, you know, in a corner individually. We like this idea that there's a sort of prolonged break from, you know, immersion into these uh, digital uh, spaces and experience. So that's, that's on you know, one side, rich developed countries. But then you've got your developing countries where there's huge numbers of people with no access to technology at all. And clearly that's disempowering. You know? And so you know, there, the, the sort of narrative was, my gosh, that we knew about the digital divide before, but COVID just made it so apparent. You know, all of these people are just missing out on education. There's no way for them to access educational materials. Yes, maybe the government put some, you know, educational learning materials on a on a URL someplace, but nobody's able to access it. The devices are too expensive. The connectivity plans are, you know, prohibitively expensive. So you have this sort of, you know, these very different views. And we're we're seeing some quite concerning signs that in rich and developing countries, technology is now being positioned as a sort of solution for underprivileged people. That at sort of automated learning and you know log on to your device and access things that that's that'll be for you know the the underprivileged whereas the very privileged schools will access in-person learning with teachers and sort of technology life i always try to keep a sort of litmus test on like what are the what are the most privileged people in societies doing i sit in paris and france you know rich country rich city we're in the, the seventh arrondissement in paris but the, the schools here, the, the richest, you know, most expensive private schools, they market no technology at all. You know, we're, we do human experiences. We teach people socio-emotional skills. We'll teach your kids all the soft skills. The tech stuff, don't worry about that. That's going to come for sure. You know, they got devices and tablets and computers at home. You know, yes, we'll kind of work with that a bit. But the, the space of the school, we're kind of putting that aside. Ironically, that's even true in the heart of Silicon Valley. You look at where the kind of leaders and shakers of your tech, you know, big tech companies go to, their kids are not going to technology first schools. They're going to schools that are very sort of human focused. It's expensive. It requires resources and other things. But we observe that education is at core. It's about human, it's about human development, right? It's very odd then that there's so many voices saying let's remove the humans from this uh, from this process. 
and sort of automate it and AI driven and all of this other stuff. And so this, this book observes through the lens of the experiences of the pandemic, you know, how can, how can we get back into a more sort of human-centered approach uh, to, to education? And, and I think that we're seeing some of the costs of this obsession with sort of digital spaces. It's, you know, we, we know from the experiences of the past decades, certainly the past five years, that, you know, these digital spaces can be sort of echo chambers of polarization and you know, there's some some concerning signs about the the publication observes it is our our digital spaces as they're conceived right now sort of appropriate spaces for public education. We further observe that you know you want to look at big uh, initiatives. We just had some meetings at UNESCO. We were talking about where are the like public you know public democratically controlled spaces online. You come to Wikipedia. That was 20 years old, but it's hard to find other, it's really hard to find other examples. Most of the other examples are profit driven. They need eyeballs. They need advertising. Public education is at a remove from that. And when you move public education into these digital environments, those become uh, uh, sort of greater risks and, and, and stepped up. Again, great that you point that out and that so that we are forced to see just how that global reset in one sense where the rich and famous and wealthy and those who are buying the means and are, are steering their kids away from the tech whilst others are being pushed towards it so you ring those alarm bells and i'm and really grateful that you do and you're certainly not the first in terms of this podcast i think of uh, barbara mosa mercer uh, from a few months back who also spoke about this human-centered approach to how we do education. And I know that you're working on, I don't know whether this is actively still working on, you'll tell me in a second, or completed the Global Declaration on Connectivity for Education. Does that tie into some of the solutions, um, trying to pull everyone together to steer in the same direction? Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, I, I think of our, our upcoming publication, uh, An EdTech Tragedy, I mean, this, this is sort of the why we need new directions for the digital transformation of education. We observe that we're on a bit of a troubling trajectory, greater exclusion, heightened inequality. This is not necessarily the direction we want to continue careening down. So the Global Declaration is our sort of best ideas about how to reorient uh, the digital transformation of education. And it's, it's, very, it's very simple actually. And we work to kind of hard to just ensure that the kind of main ideas come through. First idea is how can we better center the most marginalized? We see lots of ed tech initiatives that target kind of people who are already privileged. You know, they've already got devices, they've already got good connectivity, you know, those are the people kind of in the crosshairs of a lot of uh, a lot of initiatives. What about the person that doesn't speak the you know language of instruction? What about the student that's not necessarily in school right now? You know, what about refugees? What about women and girls that don't necessarily have you know access to to technology? How can it, how can ed tech initiatives center those people? That's the first principle. The second principle just observes, look we have public education and it's it's compulsory and it's supposed to be free so where are the public spaces for public education on the internet 
where are the free spaces for public education on the internet with great world-class content and other things. We were really struck during the pandemic that, you know, even families that had great connectivity, great devices, you know, they're technically they were set up. They didn't actually really know where to go all the time to help follow, say, fourth grade math or seventh grade reading. You know, they didn't, it wasn't clear where to go. It was this sort of hodgepodge of you know one app here and another app there often requiring a subscription or a you know login and you know offered by a third-party provider and you know it's it's free for this but if you want to upgrade you know and get access to more content you can pay 5.99 a month in our view there should be a clear place for people to go to access public education uh, on the on the internet. So it's about sort of content and platforms and other things. And then the the final principle is around is around the pedagogy itself. You know, we saw that classroom pedagogies were were kind of replicated or this big rush to sort of replicate what had been happening in classrooms and digital spaces. Hence the explosion of of you know meetings in Zoom and in Teams and it's, it's not to say that that doesn't have a place, uh, you know, it very well may, but it's also just to observe that the digital space is very different than, uh, than, the, than the physical space. And it'd be really exciting to see some, you know, some more creativity in how, you know, pedagogical innovation about how to use the, you know, the strengths of the digital space to kind of improve teaching and learning and also to advance this more holistic view of what education is and, and, and can be, where it includes things like well-being, it includes things, um, you know, about socialization, coming into a group of peers, and, you know, these, these other things that uh, happen in a physical space of, of school, so that it doesn't just sort of narrow to, you know, purely academic, curricular-driven uh, learning. So that's the, that's the declaration. And it really is our sort of re response to how to how to reorient this uh, this digital transformation, which we're very much we're very much in. I mean, it's 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 in process, um, and we observe that the time is right now because the paradigms that have grown up they're still they're still malleable. I mean, they're solidifying to some extent, but you know, there, there's there's no rule book that says the only way you can access education is through a you know, an app with a credit card in, uh, in iTunes or something, you know, it's, there are different possibilities. We saw a lot of those possibilities in the, in the 90s and other things, more kind of community projects around, you know, web products and content and other things. So how, how can we make the, these digital spaces more conducive for, you know, teaching and learning and the sort of human-centered education, uh, you know, we, we hope to see for everybody. And so you speak of education in the, in the sense of it being a public good. I think we can all hopefully agree that, that it is. Are we finding the right partners? Are we looking in the right places to make sure that a global compact like the one you're talking about works? I don't know. I don't know if we're looking in the, you know, in, in all of the right places. We observe in the book that a lot of times the sort of impulse to apply technology to a problem often goes under the banner of technological solutionism. You know, this idea like we've got a problem, you know, how can an app help us fix this? You know, kind of reaching for that 
tool first has a way of distorting what the problem is you're trying to solve. And so I think that going forward, it's helpful to continue to think about technology not as this being so sort of this central pillar and everything. It's, it's a tool among many other tools. And to what, you know, what tools do we want to apply to these, uh, you know, to these problems? We've got close to 300 million, million students out of school. Yeah, technology is there, it's a tool. How, what role can it play? But what role can other things play? You mentioned nutrition at the beginning. We've seen some really exciting things that by providing a nutritious hot meal at school, that that can entice all sorts of people to, you know, to come to school who might not otherwise be there. You know, how can schools be better places of, of, of protection? You know, that a lot of people not sending their kids to schools because they perceive that the schools are not necessarily safe or difficult to get to schools. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a different scenario. I'm not sure technology is the right thing to throw at that, uh, at that problem. So I hope that kind of going forward, we're a little more humble in our recognition that when we look at a problem through the lens of technology, we often kind of distort, narrow what that, what that problem is and to keep a sort of expansive view of, of what that problem might be. In the book, we observed that, for instance, you know, talking about technological solutionism, you know, first you had a problem of schools are closed because of a health crisis. Okay, a lot, amazingly, sort of uniformly, the solution to that problem was let's shift all teaching and learning to, you know, digital internet connected technologies mainly. And we'll also provide some TV and radio in case, you know, uh, people miss that. But that was the sort of solution, you know, we've got a problem, technology can, you know, bank and solve it. But even when schools began to reopen, then there was the, this problem of, you know, people had missed learning or this sort of notion of, of learning loss, you know, that people were out of school for, you know, 18 months, sometimes 10 months. Our, our, our look is that schooling was disrupted on average uh, globally for, you know, for, for, 10, uh, for 10 months for an average, a typical student. Half of that for full school closures, but the other half for partial school closures. So, you know, tremendous disruption. And they students were not making the same learning progress that you would have expected at school. So then there's this kind of notion of learning loss. We need to accelerate. And guess what the solution is to that problem? More technology. Let's, you know, we got, we got apps, we got, you know, we got digital tutoring, we've got all this stuff. I mean, you know, so it, it is, I think, useful to observe that, you know, the problem changed, but technology was still the, was still the, was still the solution. It's, it's a tool and a repertoire of other tools. And I'm not sure, you know, it's, it's necessarily or always the best tool. It's don't get, don't get us wrong. It's a powerful tool. It's an important tool. I, you know, I, it's hard to imagine life without an internet connected device. It's, you know, but I think it's also okay to, to observe how it can lead to a distortion of, of, of problems and how it can sort of narrow, or, frankly, narrow our creativity. So as we, we, we wrap up here, let's look to Africa and the eLearning Africa conference in Rwanda. And I'm, I'm looking forward to 
hearing you engage there with a lot of these thoughts that you've shared with with the crowd there what what is the kind of main thesis of what you're hoping to bring across and or what you're hoping to to receive i think the 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 main thesis is to you know on one hand to help people kind of re-see the experiences of the pandemic i think there's a lot of like knee-jerk reactions to especially in the kind of ed tech community that education advanced accelerated leapfrogged you know we're providing a different perspective there are grains of truth to that narrative absolutely but there are also i think grains of truth to a narrative that um this was a, a denigration of the of the of the status quo and important lessons you know to be to be learned uh from those from those experiences so that's kind of one thing that i hope people will kind of take away from some of our engagements at uh, at e-learning africa the second thing to take away is you know okay if that's the case, what do we what do we do going forward? And that's where I think we have some really concrete ideas. A lot of those ideas are captured in our um, global declaration on connectivity for education um, and these different principles and commitments that uh, that, that we propose. Um, and so then helping people think through, you know, how can these uh, be implemented these uh, these these commitments and principles you know what does it mean to center the most marginalized with a digital learning initiative you know let's really think through you know a lot of a lot of the content that you see online for education it's you know it's pretty it's developed pretty quickly it's it's behavioralist it's a list of flashcards it's you know it's frankly not too exciting i mean what are the examples of you know really rich and cool, you know, digital learning content that can, you know, provide different learning experiences and possibilities. And how can that be woven into a sort of, you know, school-based experience? Going forward, we hope that there's, you know, take advantage of the, the best of both, the best of both situations. You know, you've you've got these amazing digital tools on one hand, you've got this incredible infrastructure of school that's been built up over, you know, centuries in, in places. And we also hope that it serves as a bit of a, a bit of a red flag that you know this this infrastructure of schooling that has you know it's it's an incredible undertaking when you really step back and think about it you know universal schooling there's you know no matter what continent you're in anymore I mean there are there are, there are schools there are teachers there are buildings there are desks there are learning resources you know that has been a huge undertaking. And to, you know, let's not just throw that out because we have a notion that, you know, digital technologies might do this better. Let's recognize that these these places are, are important, even sacrosanct. And then let's figure out how they can sort of be supplemented with uh, with these powerful new technologies as we realize sort of new educational pairs and experiences going forward. So I hope those are some lessons that uh, we're able to draw. But uh, We'll, we'll do our best to kind of package these in uh, in, in in very clear form uh, for the audience at the at the conference. Appropriately uh, accompanied by the sirens of Paris uh, behind you as you sound those alarm bells, and physically behind you. Not that anyone can see this. Is that a rhinoceros? Yeah, actually, this is a, a gift was given to me by uh, some some educational uh, friends and colleagues in Nigeria. Actually. Um, 
I was in Nasuka a few few years ago. So yeah, it's really fantastic. Um, yeah, and uh, that's um, that's a book cover of Reading in the Mobile Era, which we really observed how you know mobile technologies can improve access to you know books and stories that can be educational, and you know we observed how how many places in the world a barrier to literacy is the lack of a lack of books and that yeah. you know this digital revolution may help finally ensure that at least this technical barrier to literacy not enough text not enough books will you know be overcome and that that can be a, a real boon to literacy so I, I hope that people don't walk away thinking we're you know we're we're anti-tech or something we're, we're not at all but I think it's okay to, you know, we look at the we look at the evidence, and that's what's that's what an edtech tragedy is about. And you know, through we we didn't come at this thesis, you know, we didn't come at this work with the thesis of tragedy. That came after months and months of sort of observing the data. And I remember with the you know the small group kind of working on this, we said this is really it's like a literary tragedy in the in the real literary sense because that wasn't the outcome people wanted. You know, people in this, I mean, us included, people who work in ed tech and the e-learning the e Africa crowd. And, you know, these are people we, we all know each other. I mean, we wanted a better outcome, a fairer outcome. I mean, and people worked like dogs to, you know, to help ensure a better outcome. And would it have been worse with no technology at all? That's, book doesn't really go there. I mean, maybe indeed having some life rafts is maybe better than having none. But it's still okay to observe those, you know, enormous gaps and holes that existed. And it's it's through that reading that we kind of came came to this notion of of tragedy in that, you know, in that literary sense. It was it was a you know, it was a reversal of intention. You know, we wanted to preserve education and to ensure that it remained inclusive and equitable and of high quality. And you know, that that goal, I think we can all sort of humbly agree was not necessarily uh, achieved and there are certainly lessons to be derived from it and that's ultimately what a tragedy is it's 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 about lessons to be learned um and that's what we hope people will will take away from uh the new work that we're publishing and also take away from our engagement at uh, at e-learning africa Many thanks to Mark for his time and for sharing so freely his insights at this year's eLearning Africa conference. Be sure to follow eLearning Africa on our social media platforms to see all the images and highlights from what was a bustling Kigali Convention Center. If you weren't able to make it to Rwanda this year, we hope to see you in 2023 for another installment of Africa's premier ICT for education gathering. Thanks to you for listening. If you've enjoyed our time together, please rate and subscribe to the podcast and share it widely. And of course, don't forget to visit elearning-africa.com.